that right? Living in a post 9/11 and post Iraq war world, we must inevitably ask what kind of power the U.S. has as a global hegemon. In our latest podcast, Dr. Alex Colas joins me in an interview on the idea of empire. Empire and imperialism have traditionally been associated with the big wave of expansion of states in early modern and modern European history. But in this podcast, we challenge this notion by using the paradigm of empire as a tool to look at current international relations. Are there still empires in the 21st century? How do these ideas influence relations between states? What are informal or indirect empires? Dr. Alex Colas, a senior lecturer in international relations at Birkbeck College, University of London, and author of the book Empire, explains. Well, the concept of empire comes from Latin imperium, and it basically means power. So anything relating to empires concerns questions of power between and across states. I've suggested that there are some transhistorical features of empires, and they involve, firstly, most obviously, expansion. All empires expand beyond their original political origins, their polities that they're expansive. Secondly. Empires claim and oftentimes do deliver an order, an international order, a regional order. Sometimes,、um, when we get to the modern empires, a global order of sorts, sustained by law, by certain civilizational norms ranging from religion to language.、Um, and thirdly, however, very importantly, empires claim to provide that order, and they're constantly expanding in a hierarchical form. So they're very clear that they are at the centre of the world. That there is、uh, a hierarchical relationship between centre and periphery, and the dominant populations of the centre are also the dominant populations at the periphery. They tend to have myths of origin that suggest a supremacy overall, or, or some kind of civilising mission, some kind of、uh, mandate of heaven or elsewhere to control and subordinate other peoples because of their superiority. Historically, we have been observing a number of empires. Especially in Europe, a lot of empires have emerged. How can we classify different empires? You can classify, you can cut empires in all kinds of ways,、uh, depending really on the emphasis that you want to give to different aspects of that expansion order and hierarchy that I've mentioned. One obvious way to do so is to contrast pre-modern empires to modern ones, merely a chronological one. There's occasionally a spatial separation between Western and Eastern, that sometimes follows the line of, say, seaborne empires versus land-based empires. I personally think it's much more useful to look at those temporal and spatial contrasts through an old-fashioned term, which is mode of production, or at least, a, if you like, the, the way in which those empires generate and distribute wealth. So I would make a distinction between,、uh, say, tributary empires that rely very much on the extraction of taxation or revenue through tribute, be it、uh, in the form of money or in the form of human contributions to warfare or to public infrastructure, 
uh, or indeed through slavery, which can be considered a form of a tribute. And I would contrast those to perhaps mercantilist empires, which are more about uh, buying cheap and selling dear, engaging in long-distance trade, and monopolizing certain key trade routes around the world. And furthermore, I would contrast those two types of empire to properly capitalist empires, those that are like industrial Britain and most notably the United States of America, that are principally concerned with generating wealth and redistributing it through markets, but they support that endeavor with global military, legal, uh, and indeed cultural means. Now, you just mentioned about the United States of America as an empire in 21st century global power. How is the U.S. different from other empires? The United States is a, a post-colonial, some might even argue an anti-colonial empire, and that presents a paradox, namely that you, you can think of power, as I was saying earlier, an empire is a power. This is a global power. The United States has been a global power since at least its entry in, in World War II in 1941. And it's projected that power at, on a global reach. In many respects, the borders of the United States don't stop at the Pacific coast or in Rio Grande or in the Atlantic coast, um, but they extend to um, Vietnam, to Korea, wherever basically there's uh, some kind of military base or some kind of political interest of the United States of America. So it's a peculiar empire. I've called it an empire of open doors and closed frontiers insofar as it's an empire that promotes markets, capitalist markets in particular, but it does so through the entity of the national state, through sovereign states. And so paradoxically, and sometimes contradictorily, this is an empire that actually creates alternative, sometimes competing centers of power. If one thinks of the case of West Germany or of Japan or indeed South Korea, after 1945, here we have an almost colonial presence, a pro-consular presence of the United States, if one thinks of, of the kind of military presence in those countries. In fact, the reshaping of their constitutions after 1945. And yet, after the job was done, so to speak, of creating a constitutional liberal democracy, the United States stepped back, relatively speaking, and allowed those societies to flourish economically so long as they did so within the bounds of a US-led capitalist market. Now, that's a good example, it seems to me, of what people like Gallagher and Robinson called indirect imperialism, informal empire where the actual military or uh, political presence is formally equal. It's not hierarchical in the way that it might have been in the past. And yet, very clearly, the United States accrues the benefits. And many of its allies in those countries, particularly the, the elites, accrue the benefits of uh, a US-led global economic system. Well, the US dispatches their military to their allied countries like Japan or South Korea. Is it considered to be an expansion of the territory or not? Right, of course it depends who you speak to. Personally, I think analytically it's better to think in terms of protectorate, in, in the case of Japan and West Germany and, and South Korea that you're referring to. Insofar as, as we know, the Japanese and the, the West Germans constitutionally were emasculated in terms of the use of the military outside of their territorial borders. That is one example of how there was a trade-off 
The United States basically said you can fall under our umbrella, we'll protect you from your immediate enemies. East Germany, the, the Eastern Bloc in the case of West Germany, China and North Korea in the case of Japan. And in exchange for that protection, we will expect you to integrate fully into mechanisms of the international system, most notably the international economy into the US-led financial system and to adjust your laws and your ways of social organization to those of the United States. I think that therefore is a relationship where once again there's a formal equality amongst those different polities and one which incidentally can alternate or is not constantly hierarchical and yet at the same time Structurally embedded in that kind of formal relationship, there is the inequality of uh, economic relationships and of military diplomatic relationships. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. So, how are the most recent cases of American invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq different from the situation in Japan, South Korea, or West Germany? Yeah, I think that's a, those are really good questions. And again, they're questions that are being asked within the United States as well as outside the United States. How come if this is an informal em- empire, if it's a republic, not an empire? As many Americans say, why are we invading other states. This is something that they've done right from the beginning, thought about why it is that this beacon of of freedom should be invading and occupying other states. And I think the answer from my perspective is that it's in the United States' interest to build states. So in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, in slightly different ways, but nonetheless broadly following a similar strategy, I think the occupation was principally aimed at reconstructing some semblance of a legitimate territorial state. In many respects, Americans, whether they know it or not, at least the American planners, are barbarians. They want legitimate monopoly over the means of violence, because only that kind of territorial entity, which has a social infrastructure of education, of health, of a reliable working force, of a legal regime that is enforceable, of property and and otherwise, only that kind of entity can then facilitate the order which the United States benefits from and many of its allies benefit from, namely a liberal international order. John Eikenberry, one of the prominent scholars on empire, suggested that the United States doesn't rule the world, but it wants a world of rules. And I think that that, the invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq in how a paradoxical way are aimed at least at constructing that world of rules through nation states. Clearly they failed in that, but I think the objective, the impetus was strategically one of bolstering and shoring up state sovereignty. These days, this empire, the USA, is fighting in many cases against non-state actors, such as terrorists or pirates. This picture of state actor versus non-state actor was not nearly so significant before. So do you think this is changing the concept of empire? Okay, I mean, two responses to that. One is to emphasize that certainly modern empires have always engaged with so-called non-state actors. In fact, the mercantilist empires that I was referring to, in many respects, were public 
uh, private partnerships, the East India Company of, say, the Netherlands or the East India Company in, in Britain, in England, uh, were um, effectively private endeavours that were licensed by the state. And they indulged themselves in a great deal of what I guess today we would call mercenarism or piracy or privateering. So the first thing to say is that empires have historically indulged themselves in these non-state actors, which today we might call transnational criminal syndicates, uh, right until the 20th and indeed the 21st century. One looks at the case of uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan that you were referring to. Again, by design or default, the United States and its allies has relied very much on warlords that um, I think could reasonably be considered as executors of private violence, what I, in, in another context I've called private violence. Going back, to, and this would be the second response to your question, to the role of networks, I think in that context the United States perhaps faces or has faced more sophisticated networks. Uh, the, the classic example would be Al-Qaeda, but I think we've got to be careful not to generalize or to fold a very diverse set of uh, forms of resistance or um, contestation and shoehorn them into some kind of uh, generic network form. Let's not forget that after all Al-Qaeda itself has tagged itself upon very local disputes, be they in Kashmir or be they in southern Arabia and Yemen or indeed in Afghanistan itself. These are local disputes with local dynamics that have been given the franchise of al-Qaeda but in fact obey to certain historical antagonisms that are imbued with often quite particular kinds of characteristics be they of a certain kind of ethnic antagonism or indeed in the case of Afghanistan just issuing from the end of the Cold War itself the Cold War and after. So I would say that yes the United States in many respects is an empire that faces more sophisticated networks but these are often imbued with very state-centric dynamics. Talking about non-state actors Civil society recently excited considerable energy in protesting against government. In London, we had the Occupy movement. In the US, there was Occupy Wall Street, and there were similar demonstrations across Europe. People were challenging capitalism. Does this movement or trend undermine the capitalism empire, the United States? I don't think it does. I think these are very imaginative, very noble endeavours to occupy public spaces by way of demonstrating how far the neoliberal phase of capitalism has gone into dispossessing public arenas and appropriating communal spaces in the broadest sense, uh, both those that fall under the auspices of the state or those that simply are shared by a public. However, I am of the persuasion um, that you need some kind of state power to counter the very extremely powerful mechanisms of rule of the market. Without some degree of legislation, with some degree of material power invested in some kinds of public bodies democratically endorsed of course it is very difficult to curtail the 
the power of markets. And to that extent, I think that, unfortunately, simple occupation does not in itself challenge the dynamics or the circuits of capitalism. It may bring to our attention this colonization of the public sphere, but it's at best a, a first stage in a much broader campaign to try and socialize all kinds of other private domains, including our workplaces uh, or including aspects of, of finance. And at worst, it can become a merely symbolic representation of actually the weakness of resistance against this uh, pervasive colonization of our lives by the market. And what about China? Could China become a global empire? Even replace the United States? Well, I think the, the Chinese rise, the、uh, peaceful rise, is peculiar in, in at least two senses. One, it's regional, it's not a, a global ambition. This, of course, goes back to tradition、uh, from the last admiral that, that withdrew from overseas voyages, Cheng Ho, in、uh, the middle of the 15th century. I think, in that respect,、um, the China's neighbors are clearly, including、um, the Republic of China, Taiwan, are clearly very concerned about the investment, for instance, in naval capabilities of the People's Republic. But this is a、um, form of regional influence, a sphere of influence that I think has very local repercussions. Of course, the Chinese, as we know, are investing in many other parts of the world through their sovereign wealth funds and、uh, bilaterally in, in the case of Africa. But this、uh, comes in the shape principally of economic investment. It doesn't come with the rules and the cultural norms that have characterized most other global empires. I think the second thing that is distinctive about China as a, a regional power, or if you like, as a, as a global emerging power, is that. Its economic base is extremely dependent on foreign investment. There is little evidence of indigenous firms being the, the main conduits for some kind of global supremacy. The, the Chinese economy is still very dependent on foreign direct investment. On,、uh, indeed, the signal aspect of China's peaceful rise was its joining of the World Trade Organization, which I think. Demonstrates that it's still incorporating itself into, as Eikenberry would have it, a world of rules. It's engaging in the rules and the games that have been set up,、uh, the rules of the game that have been set up by the United States and its allies. And to that extent, it's、uh, less a hegemonic contender and has less global imperial ambitions as it is an extremely powerful. Regional economy and、uh, a very powerful、uh, regional diplomatic force. I hope you enjoyed this program. We have a transcript, relevant information, and related links about this research on our website, podacademy.org. Also, we have a variety of other podcasts on new research findings. Thank you for listening to our programs. See you soon.